Before we get started, I wanted to thank Prevail Infoworks, the sponsor of today's podcast. Prevail Infoworks is the only global, full-service, tech-enabled CRO and e-clinical service provider harnessing historical and publication data alongside ongoing study data in real time. Get the most out of your study data and schedule a demonstration of this service for yourself at www.prevailinfoworks.com. And be sure to meet the Prevail team at the Outsourcing Clinical Trials East Coast Conference in May or at their offices in Philadelphia. Again, take a moment and explore their new look website at www.prevailinfoworks.com. Check them out. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. About 15 years ago, Harvard Business School professor Gary Pisano took a look at how small entrepreneurial biotechs fared against large and mature pharmaceutical companies and found the two sectors were about the same when it came to R&D productivity. Now, a new book from Breakthrough to Blockbuster, The Business of Biotechnology, finds that the biotechnology industry is far more effective at bringing innovative therapies to market than Big Pharma, and offers a prescription for large drug companies to decentralize decision-making to improve their ability to innovate. We spoke to venture investor and former biotech executive Don Drakeman, co-author of the book, about its findings, how decentralized decision-making can produce greater innovation, and lessons from COVID-19. Don, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about your new book, From Breakthrough to Blockbuster, The Business of Biotechnology, its view on the ability of smaller biotechs to out-innovate larger pharmaceutical companies, and its re-examination of a question posed 15 years ago by Harvard Business School professor Gary Pisano about the ability of small companies to compete against big pharma. Perhaps we can start there. What did Pisano find? His analysis, which was really on the early days of the industry, uh, said that the biotech industry was not uh, out-competing pharma, that their productivity was about the same, and that uh, the biotech industry as a whole was loss-making on the, the P&L side of things. So what he did was he advised big pharma that they needed to look to their own R&D labs for their most novel products, because what you needed to, to innovate was a well-integrated, uh, large-resourced organization that could tell uh, good ideas from bad ideas. You call your book the first major reappraisal of the biotech industry since Pisano's. What did you find? We found pretty much the opposite. Then an industry of highly experienced large companies with well-integrated resources focusing on weeding out the lemons, is it actually less likely to create genuinely novel medicines 
than the thousands of small independent biotech companies, even though the little companies have, have never done it before. R&D productivity has long been a concern within the industry. While we've seen a range of innovative new therapeutic approaches emerge, there's still a lot of concern about the cost of drug development. As the industry becomes more focused on targeting the underlying causes of diseases and its uses of new drug discovery technologies, such as AI, is there any evidence that R&D productivity is improving? I don't think we're there yet, uh, but, but there's certainly always hope that the biggest issue in drug development uh, isn't what we know, it's the vast amount of unknown unknowns. If we keep learning, at some point, we'll be able to eliminate a lot of those gaps in our understanding. But still, um, as we suggest in the book, it really takes a lot of, of attempts, most of which will go nowhere, to be able to find the, the few that are really, truly, um, you know, new, important medicines. You talk about the pharmaceutical industry versus the biotech industry. I think those terms had very specific meanings that have changed over time. How are you distinguishing between a, a pharmaceutical company and a, bio comp, a biotech company today? We're really not making any distinction based on, on whether it's a biological molecule or a, a chemical entity. We, we're focusing on a definition that the academic communities use for a while that seems to make sense. It's any, any drug development company founded since Genentech's founding in 17, 1976 is is a biotech company. And anything before that is a pharma company. Uh, there are about 5,000 biotech companies uh, these days at, at any particular time, although it's rarely the same 5,000 as companies get started, companies go out of business or acquired. And the pharmaceutical industry is about 100 companies, uh, although uh, with all their resources, 70% of those resources are um, spent by the 12 largest companies. In comparing innovative output from pharmaceutical versus biotech, you compared the number of FDA priority review approvals between the two and, and the average cost. What's the case for using that as a metric, and, and what did you find? What we found is that biotech created 40% more of those priority review products, um, 138 of them uh, to 99 for the pharmaceutical industry, and they did so by while spending less. It cost biotech about um, a billion and a half per product less uh, than the pharmaceutical industry as a whole. And the priority review products we think are really the key uh, place to look. Uh, it means that the FDA has made an independent determination that this new product offers an improvement in the treatment of a serious condition. That's what we believe that people think of when they think of medical breakthroughs, something that treats disease in a way that we've never been able to before. Uh, so it's not Me Too products. It's not extended release formulations. These are, are brand new drugs doing, doing things that medicine has, has not previously been able to do. And most of the top selling drugs were you know, first approved as priority review products. So they have a, a big commercial impact as well as a medical one. You make an argument about decentralized decision-making leading to greater innovation and promote a framework for improving innovation 
within a pharmaceutical company by applying that. You, you describe the biotech industry as a decentralized ecosystem. Can, can you explain that? Sure. The, the 5,000 independent biotech companies are funded by many thousands of different investors, uh, angels, friends and family, venture capitalists, hedge funds, and all of the individuals who buy biotech stocks on the public markets. That means that there are thousands of people deciding on what research and development programs are going to get funded. As a result, many things get resources. Many little companies get, you know, something from an angel, a venture capitalist, the public that would not pass muster if it was up in front of a big pharma review committee. Altogether, the industry, as a result, has initiated nearly 40,000 different projects during the period we study, which was from uh, 1998 to 2016. So an enormous number of things are tried. Now, as, as I think anybody in the industry well knows, venture capitalists and Wall Street investors are also not shy about pulling the plug if things aren't going well. If you're going to try 40,000 things and only about 140 succeed, that means a lot of plugs get pulled. And uh, that ability to, to try something and then immediately um, decide not to keep doing it if it's not looking good has created um, a very efficient system for trying lots of, of high-risk new things, some of which have changed modern medicine. How would you contrast that to the way decisions are made within a, a large pharmaceutical enterprise? Uh, we've worked with large pharma, and we also interviewed a number of uh, senior uh, executives at big pharma. And um, what becomes clear is that the R&D resources are allocated by a fairly small central committee. Remember that there are 12 companies spending 70% of the industry's resources. So, so 12 committees are deciding on, on where the lion's share of, of pharmaceutical research funding goes. And a lot of work goes into weeding out the you know, things that are perceived as bad ideas, things they think aren't going to work. And it turns out that the process that weeds out crazy sounding ideas that don't work also weed out crazy sounding ideas that do work. And uh, as a result, pharma only initiated about 8,000 projects during the time period that biotech started 40,000. Then once you basically narrowed the pool down to what you think is likely to work, those projects just keep on going. As one pharma veteran told us, once a project gets the green light, it takes an act of God to stop it. And that's why they end up uh, spending more to get less. You talk about environments with high ambiguity, which you contrast to environments that are uncertain. What makes a high ambiguity environment? What's the significance of this within the context of innovation? So a high ambiguity environment is one where not only is there a low likelihood of success, but there are no reliable ways to predict what might succeed or, or what even the attributes of that success will look like. 
that's basically a description of um, innovative drug development. Uh, a, an uncertain environment is different. Uh, you might not know that your drug is going to work, but you can make some reasonable uh, predictions based on testing or, or um, uh, other things that allow you to, to make uh, you know, fairly good choices. So that could be a, a second-class drug, a Me Too drug, a, um, the, the checkpoint inhibitors, which is something that, um, that the company that I, I started uh, ended up developing, were one of those, like, nobody believed in it. Who knew what, whether it was going to succeed? Uh, releasing the emergency break on the immune system sounds like a, kind of an indirect way of treating cancer. But it turned out to be a, a, a big success. And all the pharmaceutical companies that turned us down for partnerships uh, now have their own uh, follow-on products targeting the same molecules. But they know a lot more about those molecules because we tried that crazy idea that they didn't think you know, was, was going to work at the time. So that's really how to see uncertain versus um, ambiguous. And ambiguous, um, the, the Economics literature, the mathematical models have shown for decades that you, you need to try a lot of things in parallel. In the case of the biotech industry, maybe 40,000 things in parallel. You outline an innovation strategy you call SMART, an, an acronym for Selectionism Makes Research Transformative. Can you explain what you mean by that? I know that's a mouthful, but, but SMART sounds good. Uh, so, <laughs> Selectionism is, is just another way of saying trying lots of things in parallel or taking a lot of shots on goal. As a, you do things in parallel instead of in series. Uh, and we recommend, especially for large companies with big research budgets like Big Pharma, uh, it would be a, a good idea or a smart idea, if you pardon the pun, to try many more things in parallel and then be prepared to, to fail early and to fail often. If they can do that, then they have a chance to be more productive, uh, more innovative, and if they fail fast enough, more efficient at the same time. As it is, despite growing research budgets, the 15 largest pharmaceutical companies have not increased the numbers of new projects that they start every year for at least 20 years. And that's about 700 projects. So they might source them from different places. They might have, you know, more coming in from biotech companies or academia than in-house. But it's basically been 700 new projects every year for 20 years. Uh, to be innovative will take more than that. Years ago, the industry was readying for what was known as the patent cliff when a large number of blockbusters were heading towards patent expiration. There was a, a lot of hand-wringing over the lack of R&D productivity uh, among big farmers and, and a move to change drug discovery. Notably, GSK-funded small research groups as they were independent biotechs and increasingly big pharma has externalized drug development, collaborating closely with academic centers and independent research institutes or small biotechs. How does this compare to your SMART framework? It's absolutely the right idea, but they need the courage of their convictions. They have typically kept the decision-making resource allocations 
or the, the resource allocation decision-making at the corporate level. Uh, so they've got all these different places they're getting ideas from, but still they have that central committee that decides which among all those ideas are going to be among the 700 that get new funded. And they, they haven't increased the overall number of projects. So as, as one former senior executive at a, a very large pharma told us, my company tried that decentralization for a while, but then abandoned it because the labs were choosing to do things that management thought was too risky. You use the example of the COVID-19 vaccine to illustrate the difference in the ability of big pharma and biotech to innovate. Can, can you explain? That's, that's a great example. Um, GSK the, was the world's leading vaccine company. They had uh, mRNA technology uh, in-house where their vaccine researchers were working to develop mRNA vaccines on the research lab basis. The lab head asked for approval to use it to develop a COVID vaccine. And that proposal for funding worked its way up through multiple committees and ultimately they were turned down because top management said that technology was not ready for prime time. Meanwhile, two little biotech companies, BioNTech and uh, Moderna, just did it. They designed the vaccines over a couple of days and $50 billion in vaccine sales later, GSK isn't the number one vaccine company anymore. So it wasn't a technology issue. It wasn't a resources issue. It was, you know, how willing are you, are you to try something that hasn't been done before? And that's where the little biotech companies with investor funding could do it. And the big pharmas, you know, with a thoughtful committee of experts looked at it and said, it's not worth the risk. How does Pfizer's role in the COVID vaccine fit into your model? Well, they too um, uh, looked at the idea of, of a uh, uh, mRNA vaccine and their their in-house experts said that it, it wasn't going to work out. But then when it did work out, uh, they were uh, able to identify a little company that, that needed more of the the uh, D side of the R&D equation to make it happen. And so they partnered up with BioNTech. And, and um, uh, I think that, that we've seen that happen a lot in the industry. Uh, although early days, it was very common for biotech companies to do the R and big pharma to do the D. What we discovered in our data set from the basically early 2000s uh, to fairly recently is that most biotech companies are keeping pro their, their projects either in-house or within the biotech industry. So they might partner with a larger biotech company or they'll develop it fully on their own. Uh, and that's the, the, the example of Moderna. So Moderna was able to, to, to take it all the way uh, as an independent company. BioNTech found a partner. Uh, the, the value is for you know really all of us. Although I guess that that's enabled by the fact that you have these large biotechs these days with the the capital resources that used to be the sole domain of big pharma. 
yes, a combination of, of the, the big biotechs with, with large resources, uh, with the fact that, that investors, particularly public investors, have been far more willing to invest large amounts in uh, public biotech companies than in the early days. Uh, and it's not unusual to see companies now with projects, you know, in say clinical trials, but but nowhere near approval to be able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Which which, you know, there is a there is an essential thing in in uh, in the the drug development industry along with the molecule, and it's the money that it takes to develop it. And pharma provides important. Uh, you know, cash resources, as well as often as, as in the case of the uh, COVID vaccines, some development capabilities uh, on the side because of the growth of the CRO industry. Uh, biotech companies that are able to access the cash elsewhere, as Moderna did, uh, have the ability to, to develop drugs all the way, research through commercialization, uh, without having to rely on, on the the, the non-cash resources of pharma, which is a kind of a, an area in which the industry today is quite different from the industry in Professor Prezano's study. Is there any real impetus for big pharma to become more innovative? Can they just rely on biotech and buy their innovation as needed? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, and it, it will end up being determined by uh, by just how expensive things get if um, if the capital markets continue to see biotech companies, fully independent biotech companies like Moderna uh, and others, uh, who are able to to go from discovery to profitability with without being bought by big pharma or without being without partnering uh, with uh, big pharma. Uh, then the the price of of buying that innovation from biotech will go up, and uh, and so pharma will then need to either um, spend more to acquire external innovation, or it will need to figure out how to um, to be more uh, innovative internally. And I think maybe there'll be some of each. You've been a biotech entrepreneur, a CEO, a venture investor. How did your own experiences shape what you were trying to do with the book? You know, I think this is a just a wonderful, fascinating, complex, and often extremely frustrating business. And it's full of really smart, super dedicated people who are trying to turn these breakthrough scientific discoveries into blockbuster medicines. So in in they're trying to do two things that are really hard. One is to create a new medicine and the other is to create a successful business. And when you put that together, uh, it can often feel a bit like, uh, as I, I used to like to say, playing three-dimensional chess in you know outside in the windstorm. It's just a lot of moving parts and a lot of them move without you doing anything about it. And I think that the, the three of us as authors have had the chance to study, to understand, to participate in, to kind of live the process of developing important new medicines. And our hope was that we could help others get a better sense of, of what all of that was about. It's really important for, 
for humanity and really important for business. And it's it's an exciting story. And that's what we set out to, to talk about. Having written the book, does this change your thinking at all as a venture investor today? It helps me see just how important putting entrepreneurs and investors together is in the process of medical innovation. If you think about it, academic labs, pharmaceutical companies, and government researchers, they all have access to the same technologies, the same equipment, and often more expertise than biotech companies. So what has made biotech, the biotech industry as a whole different is the partnership of thousands of entrepreneurs and thousands of investors that has led to more new medicines than any Nobel Prize winning discovery. It's um, it, it really, having been both the entrepreneur and the, and the venture investor, it's, it's exciting because it's that combination that, that has really worked in this particular field. Don Drakeman, venture partner at Advent Life Sciences and co-author of From Breakthrough to Blockbuster, The Business of Biotechnology. Don, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. It was great. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.